Well, welcome everyone. My name is Linda Gallick. I'm the health and wellness consultant at Bella and Health. So happy to have you here today for another segment of our mental health moment. Beautiful day outside, so if anyone has a chance, make sure you get to take in some of that sunshine. Just gonna give it a second to kind of get everybody uh, jumping on here. But while we're doing that, I just want to introduce um, our segment for today. So back in May, uh, during Mental Health Awareness Month, we specifically focused on what are known as ACEs, and that is Adverse Child Experiences. And uh, within that discussion, we uh, referred to a video uh, by a Dr. Nadine uh, Burke-Harris, who really had done some extensive uh, research and action in her practice based upon um, the idea that these adverse child experiences really can affect health and well-being, not only during childhood, but through the entire um, adulthood of, of a child that's affected. We got a tremendous response from all of you from doing that segment. Uh, people want to know more, they want to do more, they want to learn about what can happen in our community, they want to know what's going on in our community, so uh, we have the privilege today of welcoming uh, Troy Schreckenbach, who's our Brown County Executive. So uh, Troy, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. How, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing uh, fantastic, and thank you for giving us an opportunity to kind of speak about one of the programs uh, that's in our community uh, that can help address health outcomes um, with individuals who historically, um, you know, didn't have the same type of outcomes that we would normally expect. So in the end, I think there's a really good opportunity for the, for your colleagues, uh, team members to learn about uh, some programs that are happening in their community that could be beneficial. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Our pleasure, Troy, for sure. So Charles, um, our behavior health therapist, always with us every month. Uh, Charles, how are you today? I am, for starters, unmuted, I think. I think that's- uh -oh. yep, I can hear you, you're good. As long as I'm unmuted, I'm good. So do we have good, we're good on that, I hope? You're unmuted, there you are. Perfect, uh, yep. we get you now. All right, well, Charles, um, Help us review a little bit on uh, just to set some, some framework for people that weren't on the call and even for, the, for those of us that were on the call the last time we talked about this. Um, just give us a little baseline of what we learned the last time we were talking about ACEs and uh, frame up where we're going to go today and what we're going to learn. Yeah, I think basically if I do a quick mini recap, we talked about, first of all, just health and well-being and, and even by way of introduction to what we discussed, maybe I'll highlight that. Some of it started with the idea of what would be a great topic for um, not just any month, but a great topic period for mental health because it was kind of a lead into um, May being mental health month, mental health awareness month, which I honestly think we can't get enough awareness, right? Uh, as I always like to say, we don't have health without mental health. Mental health is part of health. So being able to highlight the fact that, and there are ingredients, right, to our well-being, mental health, and the ACEs study kind of 
led to it. First of all, it's an understanding of what type of impact from an epidemiology standpoint, childhood events have these experiences have on us through life and um, well into adulthood. And a YouTube video that one specific physician found actually helped orchestrate her mind towards her career path. And that is this understanding that these early events impact us dramatically in any way that we could think of something bad going happen. These are the things that happen physically, mentally, greater degree of heart, uh, cardiovascular illness, actually to the point that these ACEs, the higher the ACEs, the impact on our cardiovascular health could be greater than smoking. Like one mind blowing example right there greater possibility or probability of substance abuse, alcohol abuse, greater difficulty with regard to academic uh, issues, greater relationship issues, all of those things. So basically anything that could go bad, it increases. One uh, study that amazes me is one person described it as this thing where uh, not just anything can go bad, but one of the things that can predict greater criminal activity and also greater victimization of a criminal act. That's how many things are really uh, factored into and why ACEs are so absolutely important in us understanding the extent to which they're impactful to individual lives, families, communities, and to the point that a lot of epidemiologists think of it as a national epidemic that we are faced with. Troy, I want to turn it over to you. I think um, what would be helpful is to help our audience understand what is going on in our communities, so in our local region, and uh, then for you to um, help us learn about the PALS program and some of the other resources that may be available to really um, have an impact uh, in our own community. Yeah, so I'm gonna try to make this really brief um, in terms of just kind of uh, rewinding. So as you've heard, Charles just kind of explain the impacts of, of early, um, trauma um, at an early age and what that potentially has as far as an impact later on in life. I'm going to try to rewind that. So one of the things that Brown County has that a lot of people don't know about, but we have the most alternative courts in the United States. Um, we have total seven alternative courts. Essentially what we've decided over the last um, decade is that instead of incarceration, jail, um, we wanted to you know, try to figure out if there's a better solution for this individual um, who's experiencing uh, some behavioral issues that got him in front of the judge. Um, and why this happened is because early on, Judge uh, Zeidmelder and a couple of other judges realized that the behavior that um, got them before them uh, was caused by some type of mental health issue or an addiction issue. And jail is not going to solve that problem. There needs to be more intensive uh, work. 
in, in order to help them. So as we kind of peeled back the onion, we started to realize that a great percentage of these individuals actually had some form of trauma uh, early on in their life. And so while this discussion is happening, as we're building up these systems institutionally wise, uh, from a government standpoint to address adults' mistakes later on in life, we realize that this has a societal cost. Um, and is there a better way for us to actually prevent that from happening, especially when we started to learn more about ACEs and trauma-informed care, that there is a better solution for us to actually address this rather than waiting for the problem and then to react to it. And that's essentially what government really is designed to do. And so what we tried to figure out was as we are learning this, we're like, man, we have this right in front of us. We have this PALS program that's been around for 30 years that essentially encourages um, mentorship with children who have been identified or have had contact inside of our child protective services. And we know that in order to have contact with child protective services, you've experienced some form of neglect or abuse. Um, and so the government got involved uh, in, a, in, a, in a capacity. And now um, once we manage that situation, we either move on, um, but we don't stay with it. Meaning that child wants our job in terms of protection has been resolved, the child goes back into its normal environment and lives its life. What we're finding is that without that management of that child's behavior, uh, we started to see it in our juvenile justice um, with behavioral issues, and then eventually we see it as an adult. As I told you early on, uh, we've, we, when we started to study in our alternative courts, uh, the behaviors and the addictions started to show up in our court system. So if we rewind, peel back the onion, what can we do to prevent that from happening? PALS is a perfect example of a community program that really just requires uh, an individual to raise their hand and say, I'm willing to be a mentor uh, to this child who um, has experienced some difficult times. And if we can just help that child uh, see some positive light reinforcement that they're loved. Um, it doesn't cost society a lot of money to be that preventive measure. It just really requires a little bit extra time. And so, Linda, I would just say that um, there is an opportunity for us as a community to kind of get behind this and say, with the 5,200, so this is the number, you guys, we have 5,200 calls a year for child abuse and neglect into the Brown County. Uh, 1,800 of those get screened in, meaning that we actually have to send somebody out to verify and um, work with that family in managing that child's uh, well-being. If I just take the easy stats of 1,800 and I look out in the future, because we all know that statistically of that 1,800, there are going to be children through the ACEs and trauma that they experience, they're going to tell me that they'll eventually be in front of the jail. And so with that number, I'm more than likely to need to be putting our capital improvement plan, uh, the $15 million it's gonna cost us to build another jail, 
and the $600,000 it's gonna cost us to staff it. And I'd rather say, let's flip that upside down and let's disrupt it by getting the community involved. And so Linda, I think there's a great opportunity for what you guys are learning in terms of the uh, trauma-informed care and the ACEs and the impacts of the health outcomes of children and potentially figuring out ways for us as a, as a community to get behind this in terms of addressing that mentorship, that gap. Because right now what we're experiencing is we have enough kids raising their hands saying, I would love to have a mentor. What, what we don't have is enough adults saying, I'm willing to become that a mentor. And if we wanna really change and have a wholesale change in the outcomes, um, this is a great way for us to do it at a low cost and high impact opportunity. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, I think that's just such important information to be shared with our community is the potential cost of building another jail and what that could look like. And, you know, at Bellum, we talk about that upstream approach. If there's a bunch of people that are in the river, they're falling in the river somewhere, rather than just trying to pull them out of the river, why don't we go upstream and figure out why they're falling in the river in the first place? And this is a perfect example of, of that approach of let's help people, you know, before, before they fall in the river. Charles, I want to hear from you um, a little bit more of, so in terms of the impact that this has on a child, um, from a psychological standpoint, why does it shape somebody? Why does it, why does it change things um, when they have that, that go-to person? They have that person that, that spends a, a little bit of extra time with them. Well, if, if you remember back to the last meeting, I, I made several comments on what we do to help people who've had these experiences. One of the comments that I, I had said was one, first of all, every human interaction has a physiological event attached to it. Every time we interact with someone, we have a physiological experience. Um, secondly, because of that, the greater the experience, the greater our physiology is going to be. Warmth, comfort, attachment, connection, ability to relate. When we have relatability, communication, warmth, attachment, most of the time that we see when people have struggled with trauma, oftentimes it results, especially if it's been within the family or even perpetrated by parents, uh, if they're the perpetrators, there could be an attachment issue that results. And what I was talking about last month when we did this was the fact that the greatest buffer we have against trauma and the adverse effect from it is healthy relationships. So I was talking about relational health, the greater our relational health, the greater our well-being and the greater our well-being, um, vice versa, the greater our relationships are going to be. So what I've gleaned from it thus far, the PALS program offers the capacity for that relationship health to skyrocket. Having that meaningful person in your life that you can go to. The main thing just blending where we were and where we're talking about with the pals among other things is this 
I talked about the fact that having a trauma in your life, and even more when there's been numerous, activates our biological stress response system. So it, you think of the experience of encountering a bear in the woods. Every part of your fight or flight is activated and your, your main goal is to just get out of there, right? So that's great if you're in the woods encountering a bear. Certainly not so great if every day you go home, you're feeling that that biological stress response is activated by what's going on in your life. So when we have a relationship that is consistent, it's friendly, it's engaging, and it's emotionally regulating, that's ultimately what we want. We want emotional regulation. We want the consistency of a relationship. And the other thing that's really important about it and why programs like what Troy is talking about work and sometimes is good or even better than therapy when people come into a therapeutic environment, they may sometimes be seeking nothing more for starters than that one safe place where I can feel regulated, I can feel heard, I can feel understood, I can feel respected, I can feel unconditional positive regard regardless of what I've been through in my life. And it's great, it's helpful, but it's for some people not accessible. For other people, accessibility is maybe once a week, once every two weeks or three weeks. And what we know about what I'm talking about with that regulation is it should be the more consistent, the better. Once a day, or at least once every other day, whatever greater degree of consistency that relationship can bring is what's gonna be helpful. So those are the reasons from a neuroscience standpoint, neurobiological standpoint, certainly psychological and relational standpoint, why these type of programs are very helpful in helping people live a more healthy, fruitful life, even though trauma may have occurred somewhere in their lives. It's very helpful to understand, Charles. I think it just you know, pointing to that idea of relationships. You know, relationships mean so much. I mean, when we think about what grounds us and what motivates us, you know, all of us, so often it's relationships. It's, it's the people that we care about and care about us. Uh, that makes a huge difference. Troy, can you help us understand then a little bit more about the program? Like, what does it look like if someone wants to get involved? What kind of commitment is that? Um, then also, do you have any do you have any stories, any stories to share of of success that you've seen, you know, in in some young people once they've gone through that program or, or while they're participating in that program? Yeah, Linda, thanks. And I and Jenna uh, Durkee, who is our program director of that uh, the PALS program, is joining us, and she'll be able to uh, weigh in a little bit. One thing I just wanted to. To, uh, kind of just mentioned uh, based on what Charles was saying that statistically in our alternative courts, again, when we are kind of looking at the reactive nature of our system, we what we found to be the most successful for the individuals going through it was when they are paired with the mentor. Um, and their success going through the program and successfully getting out of our system 
was when they had that mentorship. We see that equally with our PALS program. 55% of the kids um, end up going on to post-secondary education that ultimately have a PAL within their program. So we know statistically that when you are paired up, when you have that reinforcement, um, that regularly reinforcement or engagement with someone positive, it helps you manage that, that trauma uh, through time. So what does it look like? Um, as it, it really becomes um, something that we as a county ask that you have contact, engagement, with the child at minimum three times a month, but obviously more the better. We ask for the relationship to last more than a year. And ultimately what we've seen um, outside of the child either moving away or uh, the pal uh, mentor moving away, that these relationships actually last a long time. And one of those couple positives, one, uh, the mentor was the individual who walked uh, the now the adult down the aisle when they were getting married. Um, it, there's just countless, and Jenna could probably weigh on some of the more uh, aspects in terms of some of those really positive outcomes. Um, it, it really, in the end, I would say this, all of us as human beings are constantly looking how we can make an impact in this life. How do we have purpose? And watching an individual go from a really difficult period in their life, whether it's the type of environment they're living in or the way they've been treated as an individual and knowing that you've had the ability to be part of helping that person uh, have a hand up uh, and then to see them uh, be successful um, that is, uh, you, you can't pay for that type of reward um, in terms of having a, a positive impact on somebody. As far as the overall engagement, of course, you have to go through, and I know a lot of your Bell and colleagues have uh, gone through this. Uh, there's background checks. There's, you know, the, the, the meet with to make sure that we find the right match uh, to make sure that the individual mentor is going to be, um, you know, pass some of our, our background checks that we have to do. And Jen, and I don't know if you want to just uh, just weigh in a little bit on just what it would look like for someone to get involved. Yeah, so um, first of all, I'd just like to say that we are always looking for mentors. Um, our program constantly has a wait list, even though um, there are, of course, other mentoring programs in the area. We never duplicate services, meaning that we will never service a child who's already on a wait list or involved in another mentoring program. And yet we still tend to have around 50 kids on our wait list at any given time. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with um, PALS just being a hidden gem. That's what I always refer to it as, um, as Troy mentioned, we've been around for decades um, and yet a lot of people aren't familiar with it. And I think it has to do with um, being an internal program, uh, meaning that we will really only service um, the children that are referred by child protection services for the most part. Um, so if somebody hears of us and wants to get involved, um, a lot of times they have a lot of questions for us. So I encourage people, if you're not quite sure what you're getting into or have questions about what it looks like, um, feel free to reach out to me and I'm happy to kind of go over any information or questions that you might have. Um, but once that is um, done and we actually get the application process started, um, it's a matter of filling out an application. Um, we do, again, run background checks, ask for references, 
um, and then we will ask for um, a copy of your driver's license and auto insurance simply because most often you're picking up the child to um, bring them around town. Um, and then we also will do a home visit. So we want to see where a child's going to be spending a lot of their time because that's kind of our hope. Um, as Troy said, like we really want people to just invest their time. It's not about investing money um, into a child, taking them out to do fancy things. They really just like to go to our volunteers' homes. Um, so we want to see where they're going to be spending time, make sure it's a safe um, spot for them. Um, that whole process can take a matter of a couple of weeks, maybe like two weeks or so, kind of depending on how quickly. Typically, it's the references are turned around. Um, but on our end, we're always really eager. So we get that application started right away. We try to schedule with volunteers right away um, to get that all completed. After a volunteer is formally screened, um, what we do is we try to um, set up another meeting with them to um, go over some different options on our wait list. So our, our hope with anybody that enters our program, whether it's a child or an adult, that we're going to build a profile on them. Um, so that home visit with the volunteer will give me a lot of information on um, the perfect match for that volunteer. So then what I do is I go and take a look at our wait list and try to come up with a couple of children that also have the same interests, um, maybe uh, located closely to the volunteer, things like that, and kind of narrow it down to uh, two or three options for that volunteer to really um, hopefully have the best fit for them. Because as Troy mentioned, we really want this to last long term. The goal is at least a year, but in a perfect world, that relationship will continue for as long as possible. Um, once they choose a child, um, we set up a time to meet with that child in their home environment. So the volunteer kind of has an idea of where they're coming from um, and gets to know that family. Um, and then after that, if it's feeling like a really good fit, um, it's pretty informal. Volunteers are then really able to just connect with the parent or the child, kind of depending on their age. Um, to start setting up those times of getting together. Um, and like Troy said, it's hopefully going to be a couple times a month, but we're really flexible with that. We know volunteers can have crazy schedules and so do our families. Um, so as long as we're making sure that people are staying engaged, um, that's really what we care about. Um, we'll then offer an activity every month for all of our matches and actually our waitlisted kids as well. Um, so that way, hopefully, it's just kind of a mindless activity that people don't have to worry about planning or covering the cost for that that they can do um, along with their pals. So last weekend, we went to Wisconsin Dolls. That's our big trip of the year. <laughs> Typically, it's um, smaller local things that we do, um, but our volunteers really like it because, again, it's a way to um, do something with their pal once a month at least um, that they don't have to think about or worry about, and then they can make some friends, both the volunteers and, more importantly, the kids. It's really cool to see them connect with one another, and we see lots of times where they're exchanging numbers um, with these kids that are also going through tough situations. So it's really kind of neat to see. That's great, Jenna. And um, that's what I wanted to mention was that you, you organize those group activities too. So if somebody is feeling like, oh, I don't I don't have ideas and I don't know, what should I do? And yeah. um, you, you provide some of that structure. So that's wonderful. Uh, we have a couple of questions come in, so, so maybe you can um, address some of those. So somebody's wondering how old does a mentor have to be? And then someone is also asking, what makes a good mentor? Does it help if you have also experienced difficulty and made it through so that you can understand their situation? Can you be a mentor without these experiences? Jenna, I'll take sure. number two if you take number one. Okay, sure. So um, we ask that you're at least 18 years old. Um, and then we'll take anybody 
over that. Honestly, um, I know a lot of folks that we meet with are like, well, I'm in my 70s, I can't do it. Some of our best volunteers are some of the ones that uh, the kids look at as like their grandparents. Um, as a matter of fact, we had a gentleman <laughs> with us in the Dells on Sunday um, who was going on all of the rides um, with his pal and his pal was just loving it. And this is a teenage boy, gentleman in the 70s, just having a blast together. So please don't ever worry about or feel like, oh, I'm too old or I'm too young to do this. We can always find a kiddo that kind of matches that. So to, to the question, uh, what makes a good mentor? I think really what makes a good mentor is Obviously, the willingness to be to, to give time, to be sincere, be real, um, and you know show genuine interest in this child's life. Uh, I don't think it really takes much more than that. Um, having experience in difficult uh, life uh, matters absolutely. I mean, what we've learned in a lot of our mentorship programs through the alternative courts veteran mentors work better with veterans because they've you know served uh, they understand our drug court uh, individuals who successfully completed our drug court past uh, users generally relate better with you know with an individual who is going to them as a drug program. so absolutely the experiences are are really good to help with children but it's not something that it's absolute because our goal is really just to provide a safe um, environment a place where the child can conf um, confide in terms of just life um, my pal uh, who is a native boy um, the mother who recently graduated from our drug court really was wanting to have, uh, basically she said, I can't be his father. Uh, the father is absent. Um, and she's like, I need you to do what dads do with their, their sons. Um, and last week, uh, we went out to, um, um, Oh my God, it's the woodcrafting uh, place out at uh, Bay, uh, Bay Marina. Hands on deck. Hands on deck. Uh, we went up to Hands on Deck. We got two pizzas and two sodas and we hung out and uh, he went in and looked at all the cool woodworking uh, events that are happening. So uh, we spent two hours. It was fairly simple, but he loved it. Uh, the week before that, we went fishing. Um, so it's just really spending time and I would just say that that's probably the best thing as far as the, can you have more than one child? Um, we try to, if it's in the family, it really kind of, you can, it's just how much time do you have to provide equal or, you know, make sure that you're doing a good job, but the answer the question, can you have more than yes, you can. Yeah, and I think something that um, we haven't touched on yet that's really important to know is that um, it's not all about individual mentoring to us. So we welcome couples or family matches. So um, I'd say it's becoming more and more popular where maybe a family with um, children still in their home um, still want to give back in some capacity, but include their kids in it because, of course, then it's teaching them um, all about, you know, differences with others, how to give back, um, and just helping their own kids maybe create some uh, friendships with others. So um, it's pretty uh, common to us to have those family matches now. Um, and honestly, our kids love it. So if they 
tell us when we interview them that they want somebody just for themselves, their person. Um, we absolutely respect that. But for the most part, um, honestly, they just want to be with some other family, somebody else for a little bit just to get away from whatever they might be experiencing. Um, so it's okay to have children in your home. Again, we, we kind of weed all of that out to make sure it's still a good fit for a child. Um, but for the most part, those children love to get to know others. Um, and again, they're creating relationships. So it's a really cool experience and hopefully kind of um, opens it up to more people than just folks that, again, have that ability to just sneak away for that one-on-one -on -one time. Um, we truly welcome anybody. What are your thoughts as far as, because um, I'm sure we have some wheels turning in the heads of, of the people that are listening right now. And I know that oftentimes um, people will say, but I don't have the time. I don't have the time. I don't have the capacity. I don't know that I'm a good example uh, for someone. What, what would be your thoughts on that, Charles? What, what can you tell our audience today? Well, I'd like to say a couple things on it and kind of dovetailing with what was, was already mentioned. To me, doing this and why it's so, again, so amazing is I want to take a little bit look back at what trauma does and it'll help even inform us to what trauma needs. So take, there's one great study, let's say there's a group of younger kids and trauma happens early in life, right? And then compared to a group of kids who go through life without as much of that experience, right? Um, the the trauma-related progression of life developmentally becomes more isolated, more withdrawn, less feeling of safety, less feeling of connection. Teenagers getting to 13, 14 years old, they get to the point as their life has evolved, many of them have what we sometimes describe as like a built-in stress debriefing team. They're talking about their experiences, talking about what's happening with them, sharing, communicating, getting feeling connection back. So, and the, the, the others may not nearly have that and just have a greater sense of difficulty with safety feeling comfortable in their own body, feeling that sense of safety. So to me, part of what we're talking about is creating an atmosphere and the connection and the relationship that creates this sense, this gift of language, the gift of connection, the gift of interaction, and we can never underestimate how much a shared meaning means to us. So when we have that connection of a shared meaning, this is why it's so important. Why people don't do it oftentimes is, well, I don't have time, or maybe I'm not the right person. I wasn't trained in this. I don't have the same experiences. I have my own plate as full as it could possibly be. Uh, what if I do more harm than good? What if this doesn't work out? I will feel a sense of guilt. I will feel a sense of maybe I can support it financially but I don't have the opportunity to do it interactively. And again, we could rationalize a number of different ways psychologically, why not to do it. But if we're able to overcome that and take part in this sort of process, this program, we can be so incredibly helpful 
because the last thing I want to say, and one of the greatest authorities on trauma on the planet, this is a direct quote from him. As the ACE study has shown, child abuse and neglect is the single most preventable cause of mental illness. And if we can address the single most uh, problematic cause, we're only doing a good thing. And even if we're not always preventing cause, we're helping what can happen after it, this program can only do good. Absolutely. And so again, that connection to mental health and well-being, how do we work on it? How do we pay attention to it in our community? And that's exactly that's exactly right, Charles, is to think about the early on, the early on. So thank you for that. Well, we have um, a few minutes left, so if you do have a question, feel free to chat it in. Um, as people are doing that, Troy or, or Jenna, then um, if someone is interested, if somebody has heard this and said, yeah, I definitely want to be a pal, sign me up, I want to do it, um, where, where should we send them? Is there an email, is there a webpage, is there a phone number they can call? I would just say that, we, Jenna, we can, we can provide in the chat a link um, and then, of course, Linda, we'll send you information uh, uh, that would get you in contact with uh, with Jenna directly. Um, the what we're, of course, looking for um, is, you know, just meeting that, you know, that waiting list. So we have roughly 50 kids at any given point in time. Um, and we would love, uh, you know, as far as individuals within this call right now, if you're willing and interested in doing it, uh, reach out. Um, even if you you may not have time, but maybe someone that you know um, has some time uh, and be, might be interested, pass, you know, pass on the word or pass on the program um, in terms of the input or the, 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 the impact that this can have um, on, on our community. So we would encourage it. And I, I believe Jenna just put in the link to that site. And I'll make sure I send out that link with the recording as well so that people that are watching this after the fact will, will have access to that too. Um, someone is asking, what is the difference between this program and being a big brother or sister, or is it the same? Yeah, that is a great question and one that we get frequently. Um, so the biggest difference between us and Big Brothers and Big Sisters is that they are more of a community mentoring program, meaning that anybody can make referral to them. Parents can call themselves, teachers, whoever can refer their child to that program. Um, any age range is a little bit different. I believe their youngest is seven and up to 18, um, and they're um, way of uh, interviewing and screening volunteers is a little bit different than PALS. Um, for PALS, given the population that we work with being that it is strictly, again, child protection cases, so parents can't call and refer themselves, it has to come from their case manager, though they are still voluntarily agreeing, which I think is an important point. These parents are not at all forced into the program. It's just a case manager saying, hey, your child could really benefit from this. Let's make that connection. Um, and then we also will take uh, children as young as three. So that's one of the bigger differences as well. Um, and again, given the vulnerable population that we work with, we just have a little bit more screening that we do on our end um, just to make sure these kids are in the best hands. Um, they've been through a lot already by the time they come to the PALS program. Um, so we just want to make sure they're with um, really safe and supportive people. 
Um, and then some other uh, differences between us and them, I think, again, just kind of goes to some of the activities that we offer, the different types of support to our program or to our volunteers in the program. Um, we offer the activities, as I mentioned, um, orientation and training in the home, um, ongoing training opportunities, and then um, again, support from our department. So um, typically the CALS program has always been staffed by social workers. Um, just hoping that we can lend a little, a little bit more expertise to the kids that we're working with. Um, because again, most of them have experienced some sort of trauma and they're just a little bit more complex. Um, so looking at the population and the difference there, I'd say again, these kids are probably, um, they're beyond their years a little bit compared to some of the kids in McBellar's Big Sisters. It's often very similar population, but um, these kids have, they've gone through child protection. So something has happened in their life, which just, I think, makes them a little bit different. We then try to prepare our volunteers a little bit differently. All right, thank you for that. Um, we have another question of, are we aware of the circumstances of the referral so that we know what the situation is? Yes, um, so when it comes time to um, present a couple of options to you, we'll usually give you a little bit of surface level information just to kind of give you an idea of who that child is. Um, and then once you make the decision on who you'd like to move forward with, we will give you some information regarding, you know, what landed them um, to be involved with our department. Is their case currently active or not? Because um, though child protection has to refer the case, that case can close and we'll still accept them on our wait list. Um, so we'll give you that information, um, caregiver information. That's always really important. Our kids are sometimes with their parents, like Troy mentioned, his pal is with his mom, but a lot of times um, the kids in the program are maybe with foster parents or relatives. So we'll give you insight on that, their academics, overall health, mental health is huge. Um, so we ask lots and lots of questions about that youth and their mental health, if they're receiving treatment medication and all of that. And we'll share that with volunteers too, because we think it's really important for you to be as prepared as possible. Um, again, an effort to hopefully uh, prolong that relationship. We really want you to pick the right child um, and stick with it. So of course, if you um, have a pal and it just doesn't seem like a good fit for whatever reason, um, we also absolutely always respect that as well. We, we can terminate a match and look at other options if it's just not feeling right for you. But otherwise we will give you as much information up front um, as we can um, to hopefully support that match from the get-go. All right, very helpful. Well, I thought this was just a really fantastic session today. Really learned a ton about the program. We just have a couple minutes left, so um, I'll give you all an opportunity for any final thoughts uh, that you wanna share with the audience today. So uh, Charles, why don't we start with you? Any, any final thoughts for our audience today? trying to mute myself, I think I did. And my final thoughts are, I would implore anybody even on the fence to think about this more strongly. Um, one of my favorite sayings ever is being, able, being safe with other people is probably the most important aspect of mental health. Safe connections are fundamental to meaningful, satisfying lives. And that emotion outweighs logic. And, uh, People who have suffered trauma tend to be in survival mode rather than living life mode. 
This is an opportunity to help people get a reset and going from survival to living their life in the most meaningful, emotionally gratifying, safe way. And really at the end of the day, great mental health is about simplicity, safety, honesty, gratitude, humility, connection. It's the small things that make up the tenor of the way our lives are lived. So anything we can do to help anybody have more of that, we are taking our one by one, community by community into a greater direction and a greater healthy psychological and physiological healthy life. You know, and what I think people often forget is, is they forget that it has a ripple effect. So you helping one child has such an effect beyond probably what you'll ever even be aware of in this lifetime. Because that child may start treating other people differently, may get involved in different things, um, may be a good example for someone else down the line. So it really is planting that seed and, and having that impact. And I think that's what people sometimes discount. Uh, they don't know that helping that one person really, really does matter. It really does. And they know you're there for them, which is the key to that safety. I know you're there for me. And in some way, anybody who has had any attachment history or threat, that's the main thing their body is telling them. Their emotional is telling that question, are you there for me? Will you be there for me? And the people who are doing this are answering that question with an emphatic and resounding yes. Troy, I will pass it over to you. Um, any final thoughts that you want to share with everybody today? Yeah, I, I would just say that uh, one, again, thank you for the opportunity to present uh, a, a unique program that's been in our community for a long time that is really intentional in terms of our um, effort. Um, and those who are looking to, you know, have the um, impact in terms of volunteer um, and wanting to be involved in a little person's life. Um, I would just say that uh, just my own experience, uh, there's been many times that I've called my wife after, uh, you know, just dropping off my little pal and just getting emotional. I have three kids. I have one that's in college, two are there in high school and I, I my plate's pretty full. But, you know, when I look at, you know, just our, you know, I, I would just tell you, Linda, that, you know, in your, your group here, it is very gratifying. It, it certainly gives purpose in life. And knowing just from what we do as a government, if we don't change, um, if we don't go into these, you know, help these kids out, we're going to see the continued generational um, outcomes uh, continue. Uh, and I would just say as, as, a, as a country, as a nation, or just as a small community like Brown County, if we want to be different and we want to start to see better outcomes of our children, um, this is probably the single easiest uh, most cost-effective way for us to do it and the end result as human beings, as, as a society, there is great, great satisfaction in knowing that we helped out a fellow neighbor. Um, and, and I would just say that that's, uh, 
the call of action is help us take the waiting list down and actually create a waiting list of adult mentors waiting uh, and willing to help out our, our community be stronger. I think that's a great goal, Troy. So we'll definitely we'll definitely keep moving towards that. So thank you to all of you uh, for being with us today. Troy, thank you for taking the time. Jenna, thank you for being with us, helping us learn more about the program. Charles, as always, helping us understand uh, how this all affects us and, and really what an impact all of us really can make um, by by taking taking a step and, and helping helping a child. So thank you to our audience for tuning in today. Again, uh, the link was in the chat. If you are interested in uh, getting involved in that health program, we'll also send that link out uh, with the recording. So. Thanks for being here today. Uh, just a final reminder, Bell and Run is on Saturday. You could still sign up. We do have a 5K option and a 10K. So I uh, hope to see you all there. Take care, everyone.